When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. Anybody that has looked at pictures of the six and seven-year-olds that were killed at Sandy Hook, 20 of them, with an AR-15. Is this the America that we want to live in? I don't think so. She uh, was a towering figure. But let me be clear, she was a towering figure, not just in modern California history, but in the history of our state and our nation. California Senator Alex Padilla on his friend and colleague, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has passed today. The longest serving woman in Senate history leaves behind a legacy as a fierce advocate for gun safety measures and equal rights. Also tonight, the consequences of handing over power to the radical fringe of your party with the Republican government shutdown now all but certain to come this weekend. Plus, a major development in the plot to overturn Trump's election loss in Georgia. Late today, we learned that one of Trump's co-defendants has agreed to a plea deal. But we begin tonight with the essence of MAGA and a countdown. A little over 24 hours from now, the federal government will likely shut down. And that will happen for only one reason. Because the fundamental essence of MAGA, Donald Trump's twisted version of republicanism, is chaos and cruelty. Today, an effort to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government open for one month failed. It will not surprise you that the people who voted to shut the government down were members of the MAGA caucus, including insurrectionists Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and sometimey MAGA Nancy Mace. And if you want to understand why these House Republicans are doing this, all you need to know is how desperately Kevin McCarthy wants to keep his precious gavel and how entertaining it would be for the MAGAs to take it from him by forcing him to reopen the government with the help of the only rational people he can find in the House, the Democrats, after which the MAGA Chaos Caucus can trigger a vote to remove him as Speaker. It is so bad that this coming mess is being dubbed the Seinfeld shutdown, because it would be a shutdown over nothing. We do know that ahead of this disaster, the MAGA Republicans marshaled the awesome power of the U.S. House of Representatives, the seat of our democracy, to hold a six-hour impeachment inquiry hearing that blew up in their faces. Republicans know the American people don't want their shutdown. So instead, the Republicans on this committee are attempting to divert and distract the American people's attention by spending taxpayer dollars on this sham impeachment hearing two days before they shut the government down in hopes that the media, and I don't just mean Fox News, will fall for their scheme. In fact, in Chairman Comer's district, Republicans shutdown will cost 8,937 of his constituents their paychecks. In Jim Jordan's district, Republican shutdown will cost 3,939 of his constituents their paychecks. While Chairman Comer and Jordan are punishing those those constituents, they have made sure that they and their staff won't have to pay a price. 
according to reports, they have been working behind the scenes to figure out who will be deemed essential employees. Unsurprisingly, that includes the staffs of their committees. Now, members of Congress will all be paid because the Constitution says so. To reiterate, these MAGA Republicans would rather pursue a quixotic impeachment inquiry against a president against whom their own experts, their own witnesses say they have no actual evidence on. They'd rather do that than figure out how to pay millions of federal workers and make sure hundreds of millions of Americans get the government assistance, the food assistance, the government services that they count on. It is cruel. And it also makes no political sense. But here's the thing. The Republican Party has spent decades demonizing the federal government and the people who work there, going all the way back to Ronald Reagan, way, way before MAGA. But these are real people with bills to pay and families to feed and rent to cover. They are not some monolithic blob of evil deep staters. They are millions of women who rely on SNAP benefits for groceries and baby formula. They may be turned away from stores as early as next week. And then there are the active duty service members who will have to report for duty, but will not get paid. The border that Republicans claim to care so much about, well, the agents and officers overseeing it will not get paid either, meaning Republicans are literally defunding the border. It's also the janitors who clean the federal buildings and the congressional cafeteria workers who, unlike most furloughed federal workers, will get no pay and no back pay as they continue to serve the members of Congress. You worry that you won't be able to pay your bills by the end of the month if Congress doesn't act? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes. I worry about that. A whole lot. I'm trying to cry. I'm trying to make ends meet so these programs like WIC you know, if they kind of go away, it's it kind of puts me in a little tough spot. Rob Peter to pay Paul because they want to do a government shutdown and they're not thinking, oh, OK, what is this going to call everybody else? Republican Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas told the Kansas City Star federal employees have incredible pay. They have easy hours. Only a fourth of them are actually back working in the office right now. So we all have to, you know, sacrifice. The average pay of a civilian federal employee is roughly $48,000 a year, while members of Congress pay themselves $174,000 a year. Then there's New York Republican Congressman Brandon Williams, a multimillionaire, by the way, who initially said that he wouldn't sacrifice his salary, but reversed course when he was slammed for his decision. He did say that these workers have to do uncomfortable things in order to reform our country. Ah, you're welcome. Oh, and many of these folks that they're about to hurt also have student loans to pay, which they're going to have to do while not getting a paycheck during the shutdown. Because thanks to Republicans going all the way to the Supreme Court to block student debt relief, student loan payments restart this weekend. These Republicans are turning their backs on all of these people, and, and they don't give a damn. They couldn't care less about the people who will be hurt because the appropriations bills that they're actually trying to pass would cut by at least 30 percent housing subsidies for the poor, medical research and clinical trials for cancer, nutrition for pregnant women, Head Start, the EPA, NASA, the Justice Department, toxic waste cleanup and so much more. Republicans voted for that bill, including the so-called Biden Republicans who represent districts that overwhelmingly voted for President Biden. 
Cruelty is the point with MAGA extremists. And by the way, Maya Angelou said it, and it's true. When people show you who they are, believe them the first time. Joining me now is Congresswoman Summer Lee of Pennsylvania, Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor, and Sahil Kapoor, NBC News senior national political reporter. And I will start with you, Sahil. Please tell us what's going on in the mess behind you in that building. It's a chaotic situation here on Capitol Hill, Joy. A House Republican bill crashed earlier today on the floor after 21 Republican hardliners voted against their own conservative proposal, even though it included a number of Republican priorities. The Republican conference regrouped after they held a lengthy meeting, and it ended without any perceivable path forward. The government shuts down at midnight tomorrow, and there does not appear to be any way to prevent it at this moment. The Senate, meanwhile, is moving forward slowly with its own bipartisan bill to fund the government through November 17th. That is expected to pass in the next few days. And meanwhile, you've got a lot of House Republicans who are frustrated with these hardliners who are preventing their bills from moving forward. The question becomes for them, what are they going to do about it? And what Democrats are inviting them to do is to team up with them, to work with Democrats on a so-called discharge petition, go around Speaker Kevin McCarthy. If just five or six Republicans sign that, they can move a bipartisan bill to the floor of the House and uh, force a vote on it. That's what uh, Congressman Brendan Boyle told me that Republicans can do and move a, a bill within the next seven legislative days. Meanwhile, the House is branding this an extreme Republican shutdown, uh, and they are saying that they support the Senate bill, the bipartisan bill. They, they're saying what the House Republicans are doing is dead on arrival. Broadly, Joy, there's a 30,000-foot view here. We saw this in the 1990s when Newt Gingrich and Republicans uh, shut down the government. Their goals failed. We saw this uh, a decade ago when Ted Cruz and Republicans shut down the government to try to defund the ACA. That didn't work. Now a new generation of Republicans is picking a similar fight against a Democratic president. It looks like they, too, will have to touch this stove and feel how painful it is before the government can reopen. Joy. Saha Kapoor, thank you very much. Uh, wave your arms if, if you see anything, any movement behind you, and we'll, we'll get you back over here uh, to, to continue talking about this. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. Let's go uh, to our other guests. Uh, uh, Representative Lee, um, you heard Saha Kapoor. Um, discharge petition. How likely is it? Is there talk of that, active talk of that? Are Democrats prepared to move forward on that? And when could that even happen? Yeah, I mean, there's, we're hearing talks about many different things. I think that the, what Democrats are actually preparing for is that this MAGA Republican shutdown is going to go forward. And I think that they're hoping to play chicken with us a little bit, right? They're, they're, they're in a game of who's going to blink first as, as they attempt to push through some of the most extreme things, right? But Democrats recognize what's really at stake here, and it's everyday people. And what our caucus uh, message is, is that we aren't going to relent. We're not going to stand aside. We're not going to accept the ransom, uh, pay the ransom, uh, and make, uh, and make American people lose. So they need to come to the table with the deal that they've already negotiated themselves. And we're prepared uh, to move forward with that. And by the way, that was on May 28th. Uh, my notes here for my wonderful producers. On May 28th, Kevin McCarthy and President Biden made an agreement on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. The Senate has already passed that. That is what would pass the United States House if Kevin would put it on the floor. Am I wrong about that? You are not. Congresswoman? No, you're, okay. you're, you're exactly right. Let, let me play President Biden, because President Biden made a comment on this today. Here he is. The speaker's made a, a, a terrible bargain. 
in order to keep the speakership, he's willing to do things that he, I think he knows are inconsistent with constitutional processes, number one. Number two, I think it says that uh, there is a, a group of mega Republicans who genuinely want to have a fundamental change in the way the, the system works. And that's what worries me the most. Uh, and the, the, this terrible bargain, um, Charlie, is that, right. per lots of reporting, including in Politico, they are trying to shut the government down, these MAGA Republicans, because they want to get rid of McCarthy. They're going to force him to do what the congresswoman just said, work with Democrats to reopen the government. That's the only way that he's going to be, reop to be able to reopen the government is with Democrats. And then they've even got people in mind. Tom Emmer, the, major the, the majority whip, uh, Rules Committee Chair Tom Cole, um, Matt Gates has mentioned Budget Committee Chair Jody Arrington of Texas. And by the way, Emmer, Cole, and Arrington all oppose certifying the electoral vote count of the 2020 election. They're all insurrectionists. This is a ploy to hurt people in serious ways financially make people hungry and unable to pay their rent and their student loans just because they are trying to get rid of Kevin. Your thoughts? I think you may be actually giving them too much credit because I don't think they even have a plan. I don't think they have an end game. Um, this is all completely performative. I mean, what makes this shutdown slightly different from all the other failed shutdowns is it really is about nothing. There, There is no real public policy. This is all about Matt Gates. Uh, trying to raise his profile. Uh, this is about the entertainment wing, the bomb throwing wing of, of the party who've been empowered by Kevin McCarthy, um, you know, feeling their oats because there's no way that they're going to accomplish anything in an ideological way. And I have to say that you know, it, it is interesting watching Republicans eat themselves. Um, you know it's really bad when when Newt Gingrich is saying these people are nuts. When Newt Gingrich is saying it's nuts, they keep they keep moving the goalposts. They keep making agreements or making promises. They get one concession after another, and then they keep changing their their minds and they keep voting no, because the the, the nihilism, just the negativity here, is really what's dominating it. So the question is, and again, I mean, you know, it's Kevin McCarthy made this inevitable, right? When he empowered, when he empowered one lunatic after another, when he made one concession after the, another, because he was willing to put the country um, at risk to keep his speakership. But it is interesting watching even um, extreme MAGA Republicans tearing themselves apart when they're kind of like waking up, looking around saying, hey, you know, where did all these nuts come from? Where did all these extremists come from? <laughs> What, where, where did all these people who want to burn everything down come from? Uh, Kevin McCarthy said this is a new thing. It is not a new thing. And no, Kevin was the one who empowered them. They came from the Tea Party, and now the, the new version of the Tea Party are MAGA, and they're even worse. This is a tweet from the White House. Kevin McCarthy, uh, this is when the, Repu the, the Republicans tried to tout, hey, we've already passed off. Kevin McCarthy did a tweet saying, we've got stuff to fund 70% of the government. The White House responds, whoever does their social media is great. So close. The government actually needs to be funded 100% to stay open. Hope this helps. The things that they want to do, Congresswoman, they tried to force through an, a, a measure to stop Mifepristone, women from getting the abortion pill. That, that of course, failed. They're, they're doing things like saying, maybe we can just get rid of all of SNAP. And, and then that fails. They're not even they don't even have serious proposals. Have you seen a serious proposal other than the Senate proposal that Kevin McCarthy already agreed to that could actually pass the House? 
I haven't seen a serious person over there. No, <laughs> we have not seen any serious proposals. But what they're doing is something that we need to take serious. We need to take it seriously. When they say that they want to defund Social Security or Medicaid, when they want to make uh, it harder for women and birthing people to get abortion care, they mean that. They mean it, and they have said it from day one. And everything that they have done so far has been to get us closer to that goal. Yes. You're right. This is absolutely about their profile. They want to, these folks want to be on TV. They want to be on Fox News. They want the spotlight, but they also don't care if they harm people in the process. They don't care how many folks are injured, how many folks go hungry, how many children uh, go without formula or don't have access to Head Start. This isn't a concern for them in this war. Let me play even what they're saying. This is uh, some of their own members' reactions to what's happening. It did not go well. There's only one person to blame for any potential government shutdown, and that's Matt Gates. He's not a conservative Republican. He's a charlatan. I guess to that point, if you're just talking about options that you know can't get through the Senate, what's the point? Great. I, that is exactly. Charlie Sachs, I can't think of anything dumber than proposing things that couldn't pass the Senate anyway. So even the performative bills they're passing are dead on arrival. It's, right. it's, it, they're wasting time because all they want to do is pretend to impeach Joe Biden. Yeah, I, I was I was debating whether or not to say this. You know, I am struck by just the stupidity. I mean, the stupidity burns here uh, when you think about what they're doing. As you mentioned before, um, the ads write themselves. They are defunding the military. They are defunding the border. They are forcing their swing district uh, representatives to vote for these draconian cuts that have no chance. Uh, I think for the Washington Post did an analysis of this and and found that the the the, the bomb throwers who are shutting down the government represent about two percent of Americans, and yet they are shutting down one hundred percent of the proposals to keep the lights on, which tells you something about how isolated they are. But again, um, you know, th this is these are the decisions that Kevin McCarthy has made. These are the people that he has put into power. And these are the people who are holding him and, and the entire country hostage right now. And we wish that voters would pay more attention to this and vote for a better class of people to represent you. People like Congresswoman Summer Lee, who's out there fighting, trying to make sure that people do get the things that, that uh, they pay for in taxes. Thank you, Congresswoman Summer Lee. Thank you, Charlie Sykes. Up next on The Readout, bail bondsman Scott Hall becomes the first of Trump's co-defendants to accept a plea deal in the Georgia election interference case. As we learn, Trump will be attending his fraud trial in New York, which starts on Monday. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
We have breaking news tonight in the Georgia election interference case with prosecutors obtaining their first plea agreement with one of the 19 defendants in their RICO case. Scott Hall, a bail bondsman who was part of the group of Trump loyalists charged with taking part in efforts to breach voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia, has agreed to plead out. He was the first of the 19 to surrender last month and now is the first to make a deal. Hall pleaded guilty to five misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with the performance of election duties. As part of his deal, Hall was sentenced to five years probation, a $5,000 fine, 200 hours of community service, and a ban on polling and election administration-related activities. But what's likely the most valuable part of the deal to D.A. Fonnie Willis may be this. Do you understand that conditions of your probation in the sentence is that you testify truthfully at any further court proceedings to include trials of any co-defendants that's listed on the original indictment in which you were charged? Yes, ma'am. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, Jr., former Brooklyn prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Melissa Redmond, former deputy district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia. Thank you both for being here. Um, Melissa Redmond, I am going to start with you first. Um, this is very significant because, you know, we went through, we, we went back through the indictment. The first time that uh, Scott that this gentleman, Scott Hall, appears in the narrative uh, in the indictment is on page 20 when he is talking with David Bossie and apparently at David Bossie, who's a Republican uh, sort of mucky muck, he starts placing calls saying that he's been looking into the election and finding interference. He winds up on the phone with Jeffrey Bossert Clark, the guy that Trump wanted to make into the attorney general, and discussed the November presidential election. It was a 63-minute phone call, uh, after which he then is a part of this attempt to breach uh, Coffee County voting systems and take the drive so that they can somehow prove that there was election interference. He potentially could implicate a bunch of other people if he testifies truthfully, including the Kraken lady. How significant is this? Very, very. If you're Sidney Powell's attorneys, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're a little bit nervous this, this evening. Um, we know from the plea hearing that he gave a recorded statement prior to his entry of the plea. Um, we don't know what he said in that recorded statement, but we know at the end of it, he was given first offender misdemeanors um, significantly, one of the one of the um, things that they highlighted was that this was not a crime of moral turpitude or would not be considered to be a crime of moral turpitude so that he gets to keep his bail bondsman business. So he gets misdemeanors. Um, he gets first offender status and he gets to go about his life um, out out from under this RICO indictment. So it's a significant resolution of the case for him. And you have to assume that in exchange for that, there was some um, very valuable information that he was able to give to prosecutors. Yeah, as a prosecutor, Charles Coleman, I mean, this is what you want, right? I mean, you, you've got somebody that's a low-level, relatively low-level player here, but not that low-level. This is a bail bondsman who's got the phone numbers of David Bossie, who, again, is a national-level Republican operative, and Jeffrey Clark, who was a Justice Department guy. So he's got a lot of people's phone numbers. Can you put those four pictures back up again? Misty Hampton, who ran Coffee County um, Election Administration, Sidney Powell, um, and uh, Kathleen Latham, who was one of the fake electors, are actually Chief Kathleen Latham was the one who ran Coffee County. Big deal. Um, and how would one use this, Charles? 
Well, Joey, ultimately, as a prosecutor, your job is to connect the dots for the jury. That's what Fannie Willis's office is going to be looking to do. They're going to look to recreate everything that happened in a way that explains to the jury not only how it happened, but why it failed, where it failed, and what it was intended to do. Who else better to connect the dots than someone who was actually on the inside and saw and knew what was going on and knew how it was being put together. And that's exactly how they would use this type of witness. That's the type of witness that you enjoy having because they actually know because they were a part of it. Now, of course, you have to deal with the idea that this is also a person who cut a deal. And so you're going to have to explain that to the jury from a credibility standpoint. But nonetheless, in terms of making everything gel and come together in a story that makes sense in front of that jury, having one of the co-defendants flip, even after he's been indicted, is tremendously helpful to the prosecution. And would, would can we assume, Melissa Redmond, that the prosecutor is is having these similar conversations with somebody like a Sidney Powell who's got one of those early trials? Because getting people to plead out means they don't have to show their evidence. So it wouldn't hurt to not have to try all 19 people and now 18. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I believe the prosecutors made that representation to Judge McAfee earlier today that they have not yet offered any uh, made any plea offers to Sidney Powell or Chesborough, but that doesn't mean they won't do so and that they may do so in the near future. And for that reason, so if you can resolve these cases reasonably without putting up your entire case, then I think both sides will want that to happen. It's very interesting development. So it's another interesting development to you, Charles, uh, in New York. So we now know that Donald Trump will intend the civil trial against him. He will be there on Monday. NBC News has confirmed that, uh, that he is expected to be at the trial Monday and Tuesday with a departure on Wednesday. Um, he shows up and then what? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine, Joy. I don't necessarily think it's advisable for any client who is particularly a defendant in an action to sort of be present for part of a trial, even if you are campaigning as president of the United States of America. What it does to the jury and everyone who's watching the trial is basically say, well, I've got other more important things to do than to be here. And so it's not something that I would recommend. That being being said, the trial is not necessarily going to be in the throes of arguments at that point. It's not going to be in the midst of everything that will go on or at its peak. And so this may be an affordable gamble. But ultimately, Joy, I think that this is about, for Donald Trump, the show. He has made a public spectacle around his gripes with the judges in this case and the decisions and the rulings that have been made face to face. So in many respects, this is going to be billed as some huge, tremendous showdown, even though if he shows up, when he shows up, it will be nothing of the sort. Yeah, and this is just the judge that's deciding. So they may, they may want to be a much nicer to him. Charles Coleman Jr. and Melissa Redmond, thank you both very much. Still ahead, the tributes are still pouring in for trailblazing Senator Dianne Feinstein. Her former colleague, Senator Barbara Boxer, and presidential historian Michael Beschloss join me next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. 
I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Earlier this morning... We lost a giant in the Senate. Senator Dianne Feinstein was one of the most amazing people who ever graced the Senate, who ever graced the country. Dianne Feinstein was generous. She was gracious. She was thoughtful. She was kind. Dianne was a trailblazer in her beloved home state of California. And our entire nation are better for her dogged advocacy and diligent service. The first woman mayor of San Francisco coming into office under sad circumstances, but leading us with great dignity, with great effectiveness, and great leadership. She was a historic figure, trailblazer for women, and a great friend. Bipartisan tributes are pouring in for California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who passed away last night at the age of 90. She was the oldest member of the Senate, the longest serving female senator, and a trailblazer for women in politics. Feinstein first rose to prominence in 1978, when she was the one who announced the assassinations of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk. She then became the first woman mayor of that city, before being elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992, the year dubbed the Year of the Woman. During her time on Capitol Hill, Feinstein was known for being a vocal advocate for gun reform, championing the assault weapons ban in 1994, and for leading a multi-year review of the CIA's detention and interrogation programs. Recently, there have been questions about Feinstein's age and fitness to serve, after she spent months absent from Washington for health reasons leading first to whispers and then some outright calls for her to resign. But Feinstein refused, remaining in the job until the very end, casting her final vote in the Senate just yesterday morning. And joining me now is former California Senator Barbara Boxer and Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian and friend of the show. Thank you both for being here. Uh, I do want to go to you first, Senator Boxer, uh, and allow you to talk about this woman you knew so well. I think we might have a picture of the two of you. Um, But tell us about Dianne Feinstein, what she meant to you and what she meant to California and the country. Well, there is that very famous night (laughs) when we made history together. Uh, the first two women ever elected from a single state to go to the United States Senate. And I want to say right here to you that there were two women who really were responsible for my winning. Uh, One was Anita Hill for her courage and turning the spotlight on the Senate and showing that there were two women then out of 100. And Dianne Feinstein, who took my hand. We remember we we ran the same year it was unusual, but that's what, how it went. She could have gone her way because she was so popular. And I was an asterisk in the polls and I was more liberal in a more centrist state at that time. And yet she said, no, we're going to do this together. I'm going to show you one quick picture. One quick picture. This is what um, the great cartoonist Conrad uh, did after we got. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's one of my favorite things. That is amazing. I love that. That is awesome. Uh, Michael Beschloss, let me go to you because, you know, we're having, I think, a week in which the kind of history of uh, of politics in America is confronting the current reality. I mean, you had Joe Biden speaking about John McCain and their bipartisan mm-hmm. relationship. They would fight it out and then go to dinner and travel together. Um, and then you have this sort of strange shift that uh, the senator is talking about in California, which was a Republican state. It was the state of you know Nixon and Reagan that then becomes the state that has two women senators, two women Democrats. There's so much change, but you saw that bipartisan group of senators from the old school hailing her today. It's something you just don't see people talking about people on the other side of the aisle that way. It was like living in the 19th century and to to a historian, that's a good thing because Congress in the (laughs) 19th century, not always, but did some good things and there were some relationships across the aisle. I knew Dianne Feinstein a little bit and and I do know how much she respected and admired her beloved colleague, Barbara. So, Barbara, I'm glad you're here tonight, too. But what I'm thinking of is, you know, the founders at the very beginning, no political parties are mentioned in the Constitution. They were not thinking in terms of a Senate that would have political parties. They thought that there would be senators who would make their own minds issue by issue, and they would form ever-changing coalitions and they would be very strong advocates for their views. And in a way, Dianne Feinstein was sort of the image of what they were talking about. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is it's two stories, Senator Boxer. I mean, it's it is the story of this woman who really was a legendary um, and historic figure in her own right. Uh, and then there was that that sort of Ruth Bader Ginsburg question that started being asked at the end. Did she stay too long? Um, and, and, and I think there is somewhat of an asterisk a bit on her because there was a sense that she didn't get out of the way and allow. I mean, we talked with you about this on this very show. Um, what do you make of, of that and the fact that now Gavin Newsom, who said on this very show, let me just play him. This is what Gavin Newsom said he was going to do about an open Senate seat. Take a look. If, in fact, Dianne Feinstein uh, were to retire, uh, will you nominate an African-American woman um, to restore the seat that Kamala Harris is no longer in the United States Senate? And do you have a name in mind? I have multiple names in mind. We have multiple names in mind. And the answer is yes. So there's, it's always politics here. There are here the three people who are running for the seat, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee. Um, it seems pretty clear Gavin Newsom is not going to nominate Barbara Lee. What do you make of the politics left behind and the fact that she did stay so long? All right. Um, when I went to see Diane and after I decided not to run in 2017, she was really mad at me. She said, why are you leaving? You're the chairman of the Environment Committee. You're the chair of the Ethics Committee. And you know how to get things done. I said, Diane, I think it's time. But she viewed her job as a calling. And I'm just going to say this. It's a bit controversial. I think one of the reasons she stayed on is because the Republicans said they would not replace her on the Judiciary Committee. And, Joy, we all know that that committee is so tight. If she hadn't been there, they couldn't have gotten any uh, judge nominees out to be voted on uh, in the Senate. So uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. But she felt that sense of responsibility to the last minute. My goodness, she voted right before she took her last breath. You know, that's Diane. 
And uh, I don't envy uh, Gavin Newsom for having to now figure out what to do because his mm-hmm. political future is kind of on the on the line as well. Last word from you, Michael Bestloss. We we do live in something of a gerontocracy uh, in we the do. United States. Um, the average age in the United States Senate is 64. The average age in the House is a bit younger, actually. It's 58. So it's there's a lot more younger. You know, there are a lot more young people in the House, younger people in the House. What do you make of the fact that we do have a politics in which people stay and stay and stay from Strong Thurman on? I think he was like 100 when he left. They stay and are very reluctant to leave. Sure. Well, the upside is you get people with wisdom and experience, and sure, that was true of Diane, but it's a product of the politics that we're in now. You know, a politics where if you want to get nominated and elected, you have to raise an awful lot of money, you have to be extremely well-known, you have to be a net, have a network, and usually the people who have all those things are older rather than younger. So it's a system right now that works against the idea of young blood coming in and a firebrand coming into our system. I hope that part of it changes. Yeah, especially in the United States Senate, as expensive as it is to run for office, letting all the money in politics. Uh, former Indeed. Senator Barbara Boxer, thank you. And Michael Beschloss, thank you, uh, my friend, as Thanks, always. Joy. Cheers. Who won the week is still ahead. But first, United Auto Workers expand their strikes against two major automakers, but spare a third, citing significant progress in their negotiations. All that and more when we come back. The United Auto Workers Union expanded its strikes against General Motors and Ford today, calling on 7,000 more workers to walk off the job in Illinois and Michigan. They join more than 18,000 unionized auto workers who are currently on strike. Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis, the third member of Detroit's Big Three, was spared additional strikes this week because of recent progress in negotiations with the union. The expanded strike comes just days after President Biden and Donald Trump squared off from Michigan's union vote, with Biden addressing a UAW picket line and Trump holding a rally with the suits and his fans at a non-union plant the following day. No word on whether any actually striking union workers were there. Joining me now is Fernand Amandi, Democratic pollster, strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, and Jay Jordan, comedian and writer for The Problem with Jon Stewart. Thank you both for being here, Fernand. I do want to start with you. Um, there's an issue that I kind of have with, with the media. It, this is the, the striking workers piece. I think President Biden did himself some good. I, I'm not going to speak for you. You're the political uh, expert here by showing up. But the media has tried to make it look like they both did the same thing. This is from The New York Times. Mr. Biden's campaign released an ad assailing Mr. Trump as both the current and former presidents traveled separately to Michigan to meet with auto workers. But here's an organization called More Perfect Union. They actually showed up and talked to the people who were at Trump's thing. Take a look. Look at that. Like, where are the picket line signs? All I see is Trump merch. Do you know where the auto workers are? I haven't seen anybody from the UAW. Nobody from the UAW? USA! USA! We're looking for the auto workers. Have y'all seen any? Are, are they like in yet or are they? No idea. They're supposed to be like 500 of them coming, right? No idea. I just heard Trump was going to be here. And Trump out. goes, okay, we nice. go. What was the point of showing up just to a Trump rally, Fernand? <laughs> I mean, there was no point. Remember, Donald Trump's cult of personality is always about Donald Trump. But, Joy, I mean, I think you make the right point. You look at the media and some outlets that are supposed to, frankly, know a lot better. You think it's 2015, 2016, and we haven't learned our lesson yet of what happens when you present these false equivalencies to try and, quote, balance the coverage. 
I think you're right. I think President Biden helped his cause enormously. He did something an American president, by the way, has never done, which is to cross the picket lines in solidarity and in support of the striking auto workers. It is clear whose side of the debate President Biden is on. But no, I don't think Trump helped himself. I think the auto workers saw right through that stunt. And if Trump thought he was going to help his cause and maybe locking down support in Michigan through this exercise, I think it's going to fail spectacularly. But again, a lot of this is dependent on making sure not just this program and others, but the media as a whole understand the stakes. Joy. The Detroit News, I will point out, did show up and, and talk to people. One individual per their reporting in the crowd who held a sign that said union members for Trump acknowledged that she was not a union member who approached a Detroit, when approached by a Detroit News reporter after the event. Another person with a sign that read auto workers for Trump said that he wasn't an auto worker either. Uh, your thoughts, Jay Jordan. I love it. First, I have to say I stand in solidarity with all workers. As a member of the WGA, I'm just off strike. As a member of SAG, I'm still yeah. on strike. The American workers are getting squeezed like a Colorado congresswoman at a performance of Beetlejuice. We cannot <laughs> let this happen. We have to make sure also that we can't compare these two like they're the same. How can Trump be so much more skilled than Biden when he befuddled like Mr. Magoo showed up at the wrong place? with non-union workers and then said he thought they were picketing for the wrong reasons. In his defense, he would have said that to civil rights protesters, too, though. Firm but fair. Uh, but let's go to Bob Menendez, uh, Fernand. Uh, so this is on the Democratic side. And Democrats have called on him to step down uh, for being uh, accused of felonies. Here's was his explanation. He said, for 30 years, I've withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I've kept for emergencies. And because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba, he said, these are monies drawn from my personal savings account based on income I've lawfully derived over 30 years. That is about the cash stuffed in his pockets and the gold bars. But Senator Menendez Fernand was born in 1954 five years before Fidel Castro took over Cuba. What do you make of him using his heritage as a defense? Yeah, it's very unfortunate. And again, th there is a lot of people that have experienced that trauma of exile, Joy, as you say, many of them in my own family. My grandmother, to her dying day, kept stacks of bills inside literally the mattresses because she was worried about that. But I think it was in poor taste at best for Senator Menendez to draw that analogy. But most importantly, it fell completely on deaf ears when it came to his colleagues in the caucus. Prior to that, those remarks, only one Democratic senator, Senator Fetterman from Pennsylvania, called for his resignation almost immediately after he made those comments where he alluded to uh, that Cuban issue for the reason he had the cash. He didn't also mention the gold bars, by the way. The floodgates opened and over 30 senators called on his resignation. So I don't think it was uh, strategically well done. It was certainly didn't pass the muster with his colleagues. And while he's entitled to his day in court, clearly it's been a major distraction. And the consensus is he seems to, to need to resign. Uh, let, let me really quickly play before, because we are running out of time. This is Army General Mark Milley, who uh, Donald Trump marked for death this week. Here was him at his retirement ceremony today. Take a listen. And I'm taking oath to a tribe. And I'm taking oath to a religion. And I'm taking oath to a king or a queen or a tyrant or a dictator. Without taking oath to a wannabe dictator. Uh, Jay Jordan, your thoughts on uh, Donald Trump saying that that guy ought to be executed? 
Yeah, I think that President Biden does something that his predecessor doesn't do is that he listens to his generals. So I think any sort of dust up between people with military experience and Trump, it always just leads to him being on the side of authoritarians in other countries. He's always like, well, actually, Russia's making some good points. (laughs) (laughs) Any thoughts on gold bars? Oh, on gold bars with the Medendez situation, uh, as a black queer man, I would never use my ethnicity and my marginalized status as a defense mechanism. There we go. Fernand uh, and Jay are sticking around to share their picks for who won the week. That is next. Don't miss it. Well, we made it to Friday, which means it's time to play our favorite game. Back with me, Fernand Amandi and Jay Jordan. Fernand, my friend, who won the week? Joy, this is always a tough contest, but this week there is no question. We just saw him a few minutes ago. General Mark Milley won the week with what really is a shocking clarion call to the country, military, him calling the former commander-in-chief Donald Trump and potentially the future commander-in-chief with a reference about as subtle as a punch in the face, a wannabe dictator, was shocking, yeah. scaring, necessary. For that alone, General Mark Milley, my winner of the week. He, he is uh, he is impressive. He could be an Eisenhower if he ever wanted to get into another field like politics. Uh, Jay Jordan, your choice for who in the week? The winner of the week is Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, <laughs> because he did so bad in the presidential debate that he doesn't have to run anymore. He can go <laughs> back home to his girlfriend. I think it was a real win for representation. It proved that black people can be stupid, too. Tim Scott <laughs> said that slavery was bad, but LBJ was worse. <laughs> what? Yeah, just, you- Jay, you know to his, his girlfriend go to another school. Here's my version of who won the week. Here's my pick for who won the week. We're here because of math. That's what this is about. They can't save Donald Trump. Honestly, no one has testified of what crime they believe the president of the United States has committed. No evidence of any presidential wrongdoing. No smoking gun. No gun. No smoke. This is an embarrassment. An embarrassment to the time and people of this country. House Democrats won the week. Thank you for Nanamondi, Jay Jordan. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.